The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer for this podcast. Now, this is episode number 263, which means we are well into our sixth year of podcasting weekly about the addiction pandemic. And it is our hope that we give you hope and that we let you know that help is available. You just have to reach out for it. There's so much help out there for you, whether you are the addict yourself or whether you are a loved one of an addict, there's help available. And if you can't find anybody else to talk to you, you can always call us and we'll talk to you. We've got one of those phones that just goes to voicemail, but I guarantee we'll call you back. So today, as I said, is episode number 263. Just a reminder to please go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe and give us a thumbs up or a five-star rating so that Google will put us at the top of the list when people search for podcasts on addiction because we think we've got a pretty good podcast going here. Also, if you can go to our YouTube channel, if you like watching videos, uh, in early 2020, we started recording, uh, video recording all of our interviews, most of them. There were a couple of people who weren't prepared for video, but um, yeah, so they're all on video. And once again, subscribe to the channel. If you want to get notified when we have a new episode, click the thumbs up. And if you, no, 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 sorry, that's a good rating. If you want to get notified, ring the bell and you'll get a notification every time we put up a new video. But also a thumbs up helps us again with Google and YouTube and the search engines. So today we have an, an interview with a very interesting lady named Nadia Davis. She is the recipient of multiple state and national public service awards and has been a public figure in California for over two decades. As a young, high-profile lawyer, Nadia served on the school board and represented the wrongly convicted. She then led local and state efforts to improve collaboration of services for victims of interpersonal violence and was elected as county supervisor. She's the former longtime spouse of Bill Lockyer, California's former attorney general and treasurer. Her experience with PTSD and addiction in the trenches of a highly publicized abusive relationship led Davis through the challenges of public shaming, injustice, arrests, mandated treatment, and a total lack of privacy for personal issues. She today suggests a more, com more compassionate methods of treatment and restorative justice, enabling those in recovery from trauma and addiction to ultimately find their personal truth and their strength within. Let's talk to Nadia Davis. Nadia Davis, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and share your story. Thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Oh, thank you. It's, I would say it's our pleasure. It's not so much a pleasure, but we just feel it's like a duty. You know, we don't have family members who are addicted, but if we don't all do something about this problem, it's not gonna go away. So anyway, um, so take us back you know, your, your childhood, where did you grow up? What was your life like? So I'm the youngest of seven of an extremely ethnically diverse family. My father's Native American and Hispanic, and my mother's a German immigrant. Um, I'm the youngest of seven children, um, seven kids in nine years. Um, wow. Both of my parents have fascinating stories. Um, my father was an orphan field worker, um, you know, overcame a ton of poverty and challenges and losses. Um, 
became the first Spanish speaking attorney um, in California and wow. yeah, founded the Hispanic bar and the Hispanic chamber and just was, um, you know, uh, a chest full of warmth in any room that he walked in. And he was my inspiration to, you know, follow in his footsteps to become an attorney and help other people. Um, my, my childhood was very um, busy. Um, there was a ton going on in the house and um, being the youngest um, and, you know, a very uh, close, small quarters with a lot of people um, my parents did the best they could. I mean, uh, amazing individuals each, um, you know, they, they did not learn how to um, identify their own feelings, let alone sit down with a kid and say, you know, how, how are you really doing? Um, and well, that um, would be, I would think that would be really hard with seven kids anyway. I mean, totally, yes. My son has totally. three, and to sit down with one of them out of the three and ask that question, right? You know, but yeah. I say this because I like to to um, a lot of people, you know, do ACA work or or things of that sort, codependency and things of that sort, and and I, I want to encourage people that have trauma in their past or anything of that sort that 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 work is super crucial. Um, but sometimes it also, it can be a source of gratitude because we can look at generational progress, you know, while we're trying to prevent generational trauma or addiction patterns. Um, my story very much relates to the two. Um, so I say that because um, I want to get into, you know, um, kind of a, a concept of relating to the world that I now understand that I didn't for years that, that most of us have. It was, you know... Um, racial bullying, um, molestation by a doctor, um, a lot of uh, things where when we don't learn as a child, you know, I would hide in the closet and there'd be all this stuff going on around me. And so it kind of, you know, through trauma work, I learned um, it created this, this uh, parts in me that was kind of like very survivalistic. So as a child, my roles you know, were to save the world. They were, I was very outgoing, very um, imaginative from projects and crafts to, you know, student government, um, you know, throughout. And, you know, I was bullied in elementary school, but, you know, later became, you know, in student government and, um, you know, the basketball homecoming queen and things of that sort. And I, I loved um projects. You know, that was how I found my purpose. And my, my parents inspired me so much, you know, they, with seven kids helped the Vietnamese refugees, you know, my father was a bridge builder between political parties. And, you know, we hosted a lot of events and things. So, so I escaped in that while not dealing with um, some pretty significant um, trauma that I didn't even really know how to I didn't even know it was that, you know, so, um, so I then, you know, um, I have three brothers and three sisters. I was not supposed to be born. Um, and, um, you know, entered, um, UCLA. Um, I was the first of the children to go to, um, a university and, um, you know, had, uh, the goal again of saving the world. I was a sociology major with a um, specialization in juvenile justice, and 
um, picked myself up and again, was heading towards these goals. And I, um, in the midst of all of that, uh, had an eating disorder. My, my father's alcoholism, um, took a, a turn for the worst. I did not see the worst of it, but my family split over religious differences. And again, with the inability to kind of explain or understand, to explain to a child, this is what is happening. That was what I could control. How um, old were you do- when they split, Nadia? Um, they didn't split. They, my mom left for Germany. I came home and the house was suddenly empty. And that was when I actually saw um, alcoholism at its best. I, I, I identified with my father for once somebody was crying. You know, he'd sit on the floor with a drink in front of the TV and would, his tears would just kind of silently fall. And I said, Alleluia, somebody finally has feelings, you know, and is showing it. And at that point, I was probably only 10 when my mom went to Germany with my two oldest sisters. And then she did return eventually. Um, um, yet uh, the, the family was kind of never the same for a long period of time. Um, you know, the the older sisters moved out and again, I just kind of hid into, um, my, my quiet space. You know, I entered these national contests and went to New York and it, it, again, it was picking myself back up, not understanding a lot that was going on and identifying with outside projects and things. Um, I went to UCLA. Um, I, um, had, um, an experience with, an extremely um, violent, violent um, sexual assault. And it really spun me back into the same patterns. I had, I was very prude when it comes to drugs and alcohol in terms of, I was not a drinker at all until my early thirties. I think I smoked a joint in college. Um, So from that, I went to, um, to law school. Um, I, uh, hid again and hadn't dealt with the rape, got myself in, in, you know, a, a intensely passionate relationship with a boyfriend at the time in college. And that became abusive. And, um, so I decided to escape that again with a bigger call and, um, went to Loyola law school um, was really, again, in my element, um, loving what I was doing. Um, I studied abroad human rights and environmental law after my first year of law school. And then my, um, father abruptly passed away, um, just out of the blue, bam, um, from a heart attack, uh, playing basketball, right? Like the week before my my, um, finals in my first quarter. Um, and I, um, I was going to drop out to care for my mother. Um, and instead I moved home and, you know, took care of everything and commuted. And I do believe that that was when I began drinking, self-medicating. It was the way I could cry. It was, you know, um, sitting down on the floor of my best friend, Priscilla, and her playing the guitar and just 
crying my heart out and um, not really being able to process the loss other than through long drives with songs. And um, I mean, he was my hero. It was like my sense of a home, um, my sense of good in the world, um, everything I believed in, like nothing made sense anymore. Um, And I didn't feel that I had really a home base forever in my life after that until I started doing the real, you know, recovery work. Um, and thus the, the book is called home is within you. Yes. Um, but I, uh, you know, I, I can continue. Um, well, you, you got in, so you became an attorney and then you, you, what were you, what was your main focus in your practice? So my main focus, um, began very much so with a lot of like voting rights and civil rights. Um, okay. I returned to the heart of Orange County where my father, um, you know, had been a legacy and a local leader. Um, and uh, I started actually, while I was studying for the bar exam, working on some local kind of nonpartisan registration efforts um, with youth. And through that, um, I was encouraged to run for the school board. Um, I felt closer to my father and his spirit in that area and in that work. And it really kind of like reignited, um, well, not only um, the unwillingness to say goodbye to him, but but also just a sense like, um, okay, I get this. Like this is this is where I'm meant to be and this is how I'm I'm gonna improve the world. Um, things I did get elected and during that time I began representing a wrongfully convicted um, child. Arthur Carmona, and was totally in my element. And, um, and he, that whole story is in the book. Um, And so there's very much a justice story as well as my whole father's story, uh, you know, in the Hispanic Native American heritage story is the beginning. And so he would be proud. (laughs) He would be proud of what you did. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And he has been with me, you know, the whole way. And towards the end, you know, both of their spirits, um, I'll explain it to you. Um, Arthur eventually also passed and, um, but, but really kind of the turning point in my sobriety was, was a moment where decades later it was, you know, reminded like, do not forget who you are. And, um, but my, my, um, father passed away in November of 94. And then I, had a near-death car accident um, in July of 99. And so again, I'm picking myself up. I'm, you know, people are like higher office, all these state and national awards. And um, I I appreciated, you know, all all of it. And then it was like, bam, I, a big rig hit my car and it flipped three times. And I wasn't breathing when they found me. I had 22 broken bones, my brain bled. Um, And that, you know, um, was something that when people, I mean, anybody that has gone through a severe accident and tragedy like that, we just, I, you know, after months in the hospital and then a rehabilitation hospital, I was IV demorphine for a month and a half. I'm sure. Yeah. Otherwise, how else do you come through it? I wasn't, I was in a, 
drug-induced coma for about a month and a half. And then you get out. And then I had to learn to kind of walk again. And this is in the middle of this big case and being on the school board. And so our minds, my mind was, they're going to forget you. Um, you know, um, I need to get out of this place. Um, once I started processing what had happened, it was all about like the outside role and purpose and, and in no way, shape or form did I, or my mom, who was still very much distraught, say, you need to stop. You know, you need to take time. You're still in a wheelchair. I went back to school board meetings in my wheelchair and, um, you know, and just uh, when I started walking again, you know, put my heels and suit on and, and okay, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm fine. The chronic pain and, um, the near sudden death then of my best friend, Priscilla, the one who I mentioned, she died of ovarian cancer at a very young age in front of me. And it was just like, what do you do? You work in the day and I come home and I know I'll have my relief at night. I didn't know how physical pain can bring up flashbacks or things. Um, I didn't even, there just was no, no connection at all you know Understood. i mean in regular yeah. life without these things happening to people yeah we just kind of go about oh, i'm gonna have my drink and i'll have relief at night and then it became you know excessive at night it became energy drinks with that and you know putting on the suit and going about and then you know sometimes being in such pain you know um having to kind of hold on to the podium because i remember a couple times i would trip and it just slowly became more and more obvious. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much longer I can do this. And then I met um, my husband, um, who's now my ex-husband, but we're, we're very close friends and co-parent very well. I met him, um, I was on the school board and there was a local Marine base closure and um, I was president of the board and we were trying to build schools for an overcrowded school district and we're locked out of using the land. And so it led to this complicated, I don't need to get into the details here, but, <laughs> but you met him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It involved the state attorney general. And so I went to an event with the other presidents of like the local community colleges and approached him. And, you know, when he, he was getting an award at this event and the rest is history. I mean, I basically said, you're going to support children in schools <laughs> over a oh, shopping day at Walmart. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and we, um, uh, I mean, it went straight over my head. Um, I thought he was much younger than he was. Um, we connected on policy on, you know, our talk. Um, and I was introduced to a drug and, used it and I got pregnant very quickly um, and made plans to have my child on my own and very abruptly was asked to marry and kind of was on a train of a public damage control mm. thing. And, um, you know, he did the, he thought he was doing the right thing and, um, you know, we, uh, 
started on those. I started in a way where I felt controlled. I wasn't being married. I wasn't marrying. It just kind of happened. It was like orchestrated. And I kind of turned back and was like, what on earth just happened? Mm -hmm. Um, This isn't love. This isn't um, uh, what I had planned, certainly. So you were pregnant with his child? Yes. Okay. All right. So he was doing the right thing. I get it. And then, um, yeah, I mean, life, life, uh, I focused on all the good things. Um, there was so much to be grateful for our son, Diego, our oldest son is an amazing, amazing human being. A chapter includes all the different adventures because we traveled a whole lot, um, a lot. And I just escaped completely in him. It became an extremely isolating life um, being in the public eye. And it just, my, he was the state attorney general at the time and, um, left everything down South, my family, my work, everything moved up North was on the road. And, um, I began having a lot of flashbacks, the age difference caught up, the chronic pain just started flaring up. So depression. And were you doing drugs at the time? Were you, or just alcohol? Um, I didn't, I was, again, I, I am a periodic, uh, uh, what do you call it? Gosh, uh, self-medicator? No, no, no. Well, yes, definitely a periodic self-medicator, but when I would relapse, it would be intense. I got it. So I was never a daily drinker. Um, it was all um, or nothing. No, there yeah. were phases. There were phases where there'd be a month and then, and then, you know, it was extremes. Got it. Um, and, and so what started happening, however, during that time was I did start drinking to kind of prepare myself psychologically for when I either had to be in the public eye or when my husband would come home because I didn't feel safe to mention any of my struggles um, and really just became a robot. Um, And that, you know, worked okay for a little while. Um, I then ran and was elected to become a county supervisor um, and things just got worse. Um, I lost, um, we lost a child Oh, Arthur no. Carmona, who had been freed, um, was hit and struck by a car. Oh. My brother attempted suicide. I had taken him in. And it just was another layer of you don't have tools as a child. You don't have tools in college. Then you life, you create these extra, extra layers. And so at that point, it was like, you know, my father's death, Priscilla's death, the child, the chronic pain. I just had no clue how the disease through manipulating or or through our mind, our mind is so survivalistic. And the only benefit that that is non-spiritual that comes to me from being spiritual is that I can see that I am not it. Right. Then it's like, I live in it. We live in it. And so it was nothing but shame fear, self-pity, all the character defects we say. And I was a deer, you know, with headlights when I met an individual 
whom when I did seek treatment for drinking from self-medicating, um, I met an individual getting help and that person, I made the grave mistake of using drugs with that person. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. In the midst of our, we were separated, but that does not matter. Um, my husband had his own thing kind of going on and it just became, um, you know, a heavy, heavy, short-lived, intense addiction to methamphetamine. And the hardest drug, you know, I mean, heroin is killing people. Thank God I never tried heroin. Um, the psychosis with methamphetamine and and that man being a sociopath um, led to layers and layers of unrecognized um, exploitation. He was selling pictures of me online. He blackmailed us. He threatened suicide every time I would try and leave. And it just created all these different layers that I believe was complete terror. And um, every time I tried to escape, there was just more threats. And so um, that was all publicized. And I do believe that that is what led to my first point of no return, where it was suicidality. Um, you know, I can continue after this, but yeah. Did you have more more kids or just the one, just Diego? Not yet. Okay. 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 So did you then get treatment for the methamphetamine addiction or? Yes. Yeah, so I, um, I eventually was, uh, assaulted. I was strangled and, um, oh and violently assaulted by that man, um, in con during, a attempt to have him stop what he was doing online to me. Um, I had worked for the DA. So the press said that she had a conflict of interest and it went to the state attorney general's office. And so I just felt at a loss to get help. And at the point where I was going to the very perpetrator to try and get help to stop what he was doing in that victim frame of mind, I was violently assaulted. And, um, that 
ironically led me to go in to get help. Um, and I announced my resignation. Because um, you were still the county supervisor, right? Yes. Okay. So I was carrying this load. I had led a victim rights agency, um, the Family Justice Center, prior to becoming a county supervisor and just um, was so psychologically terrorized by this man. And the press made it this kind of sex scandal. And well, of course, that's because that's what the press does. Yeah, it, it just was shame, shame. I mean, my, let alone my own, the outside, I felt I couldn't walk into an AA meeting and I couldn't, who on earth was going to help me? My, my, my husband was the top cop and he wasn't like, he was just afraid of everything going public, which eventually it did. And so, um, you know, and we, yeah, so he um, was also afraid of his own stuff coming out. So it just became like, Am I protecting him? And it just was so all-consuming and overwhelming. Now, I say my story is is similar, though. It sounds like it's all different because we were in the public eye and and the press and blah blah blah. But but it is the same layers of subjective, you know, terror and agony when you are in an abusive relationship and there's drugs involved. Um, and all other unaddressed mental health issues. I mean, it, you see no way out. Right. And no matter how much I loved my child, I felt in my sickness and in my addiction that I was causing him hardship mm-hmm. by, by fighting for us. Um, you know, I made, um, so I did go into treatment up north I made the grave mistake of leaving after they said, you know, you are part of this dyadic abusive relationship. You need help, like serious trauma treatment because I was a county supervisor and the press had an empty seat at the board meetings, pictures. And so I left against the advice of my therapist at the time. And um, I eventually left my husband. I packed everything. I, I ran down to family in Southern California in my attempt to get sober with my child and um, made one last trip up north after coming down here and got more drugs. I didn't even use them, but my sister found them. And so I was arrested down here for the first time. And thus I made the story that was being said true. Mm. Understood. And the road, you know, that was August uh, 28th of 2012. And that was where the seven year journey really began. Okay. So you went to jail or did you go to jail? I went to jail for several days and then I did go into a year of mandated treatment, um, where during the summer, my son could be, could be with me. My husband drove, I mean, flew him down every weekend. So, you know, we could see each other. It was a horribly, painful thing as a mother. Um, and you know, part of the book definitely in terms of advocacy really involves how we need far more compassionate, effective services for families that are struggling with addiction and mental health. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, we can't just look at the behaviors of people. Most often there's definitely a dual diagnosis. And that you can't just have a checklist for for somebody to get better. You know, you have to embrace the whole family 
you have to embrace the whole family or else shame rolls and you know it it just it's just piecemeal piecemeal work there's no ability to really dive in and do the real work yeah um i did get sober i have i have so what it's going to be 10 years sobriety um from a drug i had several alcohol relapses all of them different layers upon layer of cyclic um exactly the same things there'd be flashbacks i disassociate you know i kept trying to prove my truth that man went unprosecuted there was many other women who he did the same thing to and it was just like this i'm trying to rebuild my life don't you know my truth yeah i'm a good person you know um and i couldn't rebuild my life everything was on the internet um at least i thought Mm. so you know the first layer was exposure to the rooms, you know, of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, um, knowing there's another world of support and help. The second definitely, most definitely was the first language of trauma. Um, the second, I mean, the last was a lot of the chronic pain, but there was a relapse after that. And much of it had to deal with feeling powerless in the system. I had created so much wreckage um, that it just felt like I never could do enough. You know, I, I never, no matter what I did, um, there was always this focus on the, the addict. Right. You know? you were, the viewpoint was you were the bad guy. It just became um, my mind made shame took over. But the last point of no return was when I found myself at the Linwood Women's Facility. I had been put on probation for, for, for drinking and driving. And I had admitted that I had had a drink. I, I stopped it. So the, the last relapses were like, oh, my God. First, I'm running to stand still, drink. I don't even know what's going on, you know another 18 months pass, then it's, you know, um, I, I know what I'm doing. I don't know how to stop this An arrest. Um, then it was almost two years sobriety. And that time, during that time, my husband and I reunited and we did have twins. Uh-huh. Girls um, or boys? We have tr- fraternal twin boys. Okay. Um, yeah, I can show you a picture. Um, we yeah. have fraternal twin boys. I had them when I was 44. Um, I was going to have another, I wanted to adopt. I was going to have another child just on my own. And my ex-husband said, let's just give our oldest a sibling. And so um, we did it the non-traditional way. And I did not expect twins. (laughs) Um, Their birth certainly, um, uh, you know, um, reignited that the tiger mama, um, connection, not the tiger mama, the tiger mama was always there, but it it reignited that tiger mama connection that, that as parents, if any, if there's any parent out there struggling, you know, um, that, that yearning to give your child, you know, that conviction of their worth and to know who they really are and that they're not their grades or any of that in doing it a second time around, I really realized that I had to start doing that for myself that my children, no matter how much I love them, 
and that role, that that couldn't be the reason that I was getting sober. It just, it couldn't be nor to, you know, um, prove people wrong to, um, you know, also know, I knew that when I drank, I became suicidal, Mm. you know, I knew. So I began addressing the mental health. And after my last relapse, the, I ran straight back to where I had gone first years before that, when she had said to me there, you have got to do trauma work. I wasn't ready. And so my last time around, it was intensive trauma therapy where I did EMDR and I would not had at all had been able to go back and do that. Um, had I not been sober long enough, had I not completely changed my life and moved from under the roof of what was a very unhealthy marriage and, and kind of created, you know, a safe circle of people in my fellowship that I ran straight back to with the tail between my, you know, my legs going. <laughs> um, but that was probably the hardest work I ever did. And I do think that most definitely I, I would have been, I mean, we're all vulnerable for, to relapse, but I know looking back at my patterns that it is, it most definitely is psychological triggers from what happened throughout my life, but the more recent adult trauma that would lead me to just falling disassociated in situations and a day would pass, another day would pass, another day would pass and, you know, relief would be in reaching for a drink. Right. Um, so how long have you been clean and sober now, Nadia? For two and a half years. Okay. So I want to validate you for that. That's huge. With everything that you've gone through, I mean, you know, we've talked about it before in the podcast and we, we kind of say that like there's kind of three parts to addiction. There's physical addiction, there's mental addiction, there's spiritual addiction, and you have to address all of them. I mean, you've had it in spades, the, the whole you know, uh, car accident and, you know, from there. And I can understand about physical pain, but then you had to overcome a lot of emotional trauma. You know, the other thing we've talked about a lot is that typically drugs and alcohol, they're a solution to some other problem. And until you can address that, which you weren't ready to do until you were, um, it, that's huge. It's huge. I, I mean, you're supposed to be here. I just want to say that because you are an absolutely <laughs> bulletproof, strong woman. You. you know, you, I, I'm, I'm just amazed at what you have been through that you are here today talking to us. You're beautiful. You are. And you, 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 I just, I'm really not yet. I mean, you're supposed to be here. You're supposed to be here doing what it is that you're doing today. You know, my, the message about home is within you, it, it, um, it, it sounds so out there, but it really all comes back to, it's like all of us want a sense of being seen and of being known and, um, you know, of, of safety, of just a, a place of solace to always return to. And, for me, the different layers of work, you know, they were all needed for me to get and stay sober. 
the the length of sobriety that I had and that anybody might have out there, any day is not lost. Any any day. That's right. And 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 it builds up. And so, like, if if there's a relapse, you have not failed. Nope. If you're the next day sober and you continue on another day and on another day, just continue doing the next best indicated thing because that is the one thing that shame kept trying to stop. Yep. And so I learned, like when I say home is within you, my path of spiritual growth started, you know, in 2017 when I, when I met Kundalini yoga and it sounds all weird or whatever, but basically the use of sound and mantra were able, like I needed something that intense of a spiritual gateway or, or physical, you know, somatic thing to, to shut my mind up that was in complete control. Addiction loves PTSD and it loves erasing mind. And so that was really what began it. And uh, anyone that is able to sit back and recognize what their thoughts are is being spiritual. Mm -hmm. Like, like when we say higher power and spiritual awakening, I have had them Mm -hmm. and I was on my knees in jail crying, saying, what am I doing wrong? I, I want this so bad. And in a blink's eye felt freer than I have ever felt. Like when my father's spirit and Arthur's spirit and like this little girl, like all of a sudden it just came to me like, you don't have to do this anymore. You are trying and banging your head against the wall. You know, you, you know, you are. And it just put, giving everything away and out and realizing my mind is just trying to help me survive on this planet. Okay, mind. <laughs> you know, okay, I see you. I hear you. You don't have to. My son said this to me one time. He's like, you don't have to try so hard, mom. I kept saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, he's like, mom, you don't have to try so hard. I love you. Just continue what you're doing, you know. And so my point is, if if, if we can sit and start observing our mind, not be in some state of complete sunie is what we call it in Kundalini Yoga, but just start. Just start a little bit, whether it's in a meeting or in your morning meditation, to just say, I am not a body and I am not my mind, nor the thoughts it makes. I am whole, perfect, and complete. I am a spirit that came in infinite form. Nothing has changed that. No, nothing that has happened on this planet. Nothing anybody has said or done, including yourself. That's right. Nothing's changed that. Nope. That's right. And when you have that, that certainty, happened, it was like, okay, all of this is, a, it's not illusion, but it's like, I'm in this body and I'm walking about like all of us and we're getting by and we're doing the best we can. Exactly. But we are all, we're all spirits. Yep. And when you have that certainty for yourself, that's, I think the start, whether it comes from yoga whether it comes from some sort of a spiritual experience, whether it comes from a higher power, yes. that's where you have to get to. It's really where you have to get to. And that's what Absolutely. I mean when I say you're I a strong lady. Yeah. Thank you. That's what I mean because it's, you know, it is amazing to me that with everything that you've gone through, 
you're still walking around and you're productive. And like I say, and you're beautiful and you're vibrant and you're doing things and you're, you know, you make a difference by writing a book and telling your story, you make a difference. And, you know, that you have that core certainty and that's huge. That's huge. You know, when we listen, you know, to the lights along the way, they're, they're there. They are there and, and they were my father's spirit and Arthur Carmona who passed, you know, um, there are, you know, chests of hope and light and things. If we just are listening, they're there along the way and people that are there that can help. And when I had that near death experience, the, the, it's something you can't put into words. There's only, a, there's a mantra that's in a language called Japji that's part of the Kundalini Yoga and, and a man's description of it is the closest thing that, that ever came to that experience for me. Um, when you, so that experience combined with the loss of loved ones that anybody might have that, that spiritual, like, you know, in, intangible power when you think of somebody that you love, that it's alive, that's like an aura and an energy. And it is that, that, that you can tap into inside or the power of a group of people and the fellowship, like nothing can take that away. Not the drink in front of you, nothing, nothing. And so that is what I kept trying to strive to find again in the drug or in the, the arms of a man in the drink. It was, it was that experience. And so the irony is getting back to what I saw was the only truth, the only truth, you know, um, I'm blessed in an irony to have had that experience and now in sobriety to be able to, to tap into it, you know, in this body, but anybody can, and, you know, the work that you're doing and the hope that we can share in words like that. That's it. I think you're right. I absolutely think you're right. Nadia, thank you for talking to us today. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. I hope, I hope it helped you to share your story. It, it was kind of a painful one, and I hope. Oh. I, I hope. I <laughs> hope it helps. This is a hopeful story. Absolutely, it's a totally hopeful <laughs> I mean, story. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody out there too that that needs a copy, that wants a copy, I'd be more than happy to send you one. Um, yes, they are for sale, but I don't need to sell them to you if you're struggling. That just let me send you one. And how do they and, reach you? How would they do that? You can go to Nadia underscore Maria underscore Davis on Instagram or Nadia Davis dot home within you at gmail.com. Everything is there on the www.nadia-davis.com. Um, yeah. And I'm doing a lot of stuff on Instagram for free. Healing chats on Tuesdays at eight, um, meditation on Thursdays at eight. And then I'm interviewing. Very blessed to, to have these live chats with the professionals that help me. Awesome. So my therapist of twenty years and um, Priya Jane, kind of a spiritual mentor, and awesome. my son. Oh, so, cool! And so Instagram, it's Nadia underscore Maria underscore Davis. Correct. Perfect. And thank you for your advocacy. I do have to say. Thank you for, uh, you know, I see the angle that you're going at and it is not just an epidemic, but we have to change the way that our systems are responding to people that yep. they not look at the 
behaviors and brand and shame, but that we deal with it. And in particular, also sexual assault victims too, that we deal with all of this just holistically and in a much, much better way where we're holding families, you know, Agreed. together. And, Agreed. and this is all general talk, but there are specific ways that we can do this. Um, Agreed. A whole nother podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nadia. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, if that's not an inspirational story, I don't know what is. With everything that she's gone through, and she has come out the other side, and she is positive, and she is productive, and she is giving back to society, just an amazing story. I cannot thank you enough for listening. Just a reminder that you can find her on Instagram and a lot of free service on there. If you are going through trauma or you know someone who is Nadia underscore Maria underscore Davis on Instagram. And you can also go to her website, which is Nadia dash Davis.com. And she will send you her book for free. Her book is called wait for it. Home is within you. You can buy it on Amazon if you'd like to, but she said she would send you a free copy. So go to Nadia-Davis.com. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll be back again next week. We've got another great interview coming up, this time with a DEA agent. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.